Amen. Man, let us pray this morning. Let's look to the Lord. Father, we first of all come to you as the sovereign God who is the God of all creation, who in the beginning of Scripture proclaimed that you created the heavens and earth. Father, those are the most consequential words in all of human history and all of creation that you created the heavens and earth everything that we see and don't see Lord was made by you and Lord in your creation you set order to your creation you set order to this world Lord when you created man you created man in your image you created uh, institutions that man are to to live by and govern themselves by but Father, after the fall of man in Genesis 3, as it is recorded, uh, sin entered the world. Uh, humanity was corrupted, and so was creation. All of creation was corrupted by the fall. And Lord, as mankind continued, man continued to rebel against you more and more we had the first murder recorded in scripture in Genesis we had your judgment upon the world with the flood and Lord even after that with the Tower of Babel we had man just continuing to rebel against you and through all of human history as it is recorded in scripture even your people whom you chose for yourself Israel rebelled against you and Father, as the passage of time went on, we see a Redeemer who was promised after the fall, Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Messiah of God, the God-man, who came to seek and save those who were lost in their sins, those who were bondage, in bondage to Satan's sin and the world. And he provided a way of salvation for all who believe in him to be set free from sin and to be free in him and father this is the Christ whom we proclaim every day as believers this is the Christ to whom we worship and Lord I'm, I'm praying this prayer because uh, as a church and I was talking with some other pastors this past uh, week about the role of the church in, in our society and our culture we have to show people that there is a Savior, and it is not man. It is not created things. It is not social media. It is not uh, altering our bodies in, in any way or destroying uh, the bodies that you, you gave us. It is not found in the, uh, electing the right people into office. Well, salvation is found only in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that here at our church that, that we see that, that I endeavor to, to preach that message and that we disciple one another in that way and encourage each other to turn, as we say this morning, turn our eyes upon Jesus. He is the one 
to whom we are to look. And he is the one to whom we are to point people to his work, what he did on our behalf. That is the mission of all of our churches, Lord, all the true churches of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, this morning my prayer is that those of us in here and who hear this sermon after it is posted, that they're encouraged to go out and proclaim Christ, to live for Christ, to exemplify Christ in our lives. So that when people give us the question, asking us, as Peter said, a reason for the hope that is within us, that we can uh, do it with great articulation, telling them what gives us this hope that we have in the midst of a uh, chaotic world, that our hope is in Christ. And let me tell you about this Christ. And we begin to share the gospel message with them. Lord, your word says, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, that we are ambassadors of Christ. We are Christ's representatives. We represent his kingdom and his kingdom interests in the home, in the workplace, in the public square, in our relationships. We are representatives of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ. Father, help us and empower us by your spirit to live as kingdom citizens, representing our King, Jesus Christ, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for all those in authority, that they may live godly lives, that they may live lives that bring you glory, and Lord, that you may uh, grant those who are not saved repentance unto salvation among our leaders in Washington and in Montgomery and in our local municipalities. We pray, Lord, that they may lead honorable uh, lives, that they may legislate in a way that uh, points to the flourishing of all mankind in a way that glorifies you. Lord, we pray also for um, the true church, that we may continue to rise and not be ashamed and not give in to uh, the foolishness that we see in the world, that we not compromise, that we not cave into the pressures that the culture is trying to, to put on us to change. But Father, that we continue as, as Paul charged Timothy to, to hold fast and hold forth to sound words. That we continue to hold fast and hold forth to your truth. Because, Father, after all, it is, it is your truth. It is not our truth or our version of the truth. It is your truth as it has been revealed in your word. So, Lord, I pray for the true church that we rise to proclaim your truth. I pray continually for our sister churches. Uh, Brother Bob had a short talk with him this morning. I pray that he continue to um, heal his body from the uh, effects of uh, COVID. He's still dealing with some of the effects of it a couple months uh, later. As he still perseveres in preaching the gospel, and Lord, we thank you for persevering him and giving him gospel perseverance. 
continue to strengthen him, his health, his mind, his body. And Lord, bless his wife, Marianne. She's such a dear sister in the Lord. That you encourage her as she uh, helps to take care of him and take care of the affairs of the, of the church. We pray for Brother Carlton at uh, Grace Fellowship and Brother Phil at Redeemer and Brother Anthony at Christian Fellowship. Uh, Cody Hale at Iron City and uh, Justin Holland at Mountain View. Uh, Pastor Curley down at First Baptist Lineville and all the other brothers that uh, we're affiliated with, Lord, that you empower them, Lord, to preach your gospel, to preach your word well, to be good shepherds of the flock of God. Bless their messages this morning. Encourage their members. Bring souls to salvation that hear the gospel preached this morning. And Father, I pray uh, this morning for us as we prepare to preach Ezra, the fourth chapter, looking at spiritual setbacks, that you fill me with your spirit to glorify you in my preaching, and that your spirit illuminates the truths that we hear this morning. Let us see your word clearly. Let us see Christ clearly. Let us, Lord, take the applications that we are charged with this morning to go and live out the message of the gospel. Lord, may you be pleased with what I preach this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's turn to Ezra, the fourth chapter. We're marching through this great book and hope that it's been a blessing to you all. This morning our topic is uh, spiritual setbacks. Hope you all had a chance to read the passage and uh, got a good study Bible. I'll kind of give you a little bit of uh, understanding on um, what the passage was about. In essence, um, it's the resistance to rebuilding the temple uh, that they found and I'll say this off the top I'll say this probably later on in uh, the message that we must understand that Satan satanic opposition will always be present when the Lord's work is being done we must always understand that that the Lord's work will always encounter satanic opposition. Satan hates the church. There's nothing that Satan likes about the church. But Satan is real. He's not omnipresent like God is. He shares no attributes with God. He has to have permission from God to do anything. Uh, the devil is God's devil. Um, so he is under the control of God. He's not out there as a as a renegade. He is the God's devil. And he seeks to wreak havoc in God's church. And I pray this morning as we go through this passage and these principles that we see how to uh, navigate uh, setbacks that we may have in doing the work of God and also that we may have in our uh, lives. But let's look at our passage right quick. And uh, we're going to read it. It's fairly uh, short here. This is Ezra, the fourth uh, chapter. 
Again, that verse 1, it says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Ashahadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers, houses of Israel, said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Some people say Darius. In the reign of Ahasuerus, uh, the Greek of Ahasuerus is Xerxes, X-E-R-X-E-S. Uh, but the Hebrew is Ahasuerus. In the reign of Xerxes, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Methodath, Tabel, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. Rehum, the commander, and Shishai, Shimshai, I'm sorry, the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in this fashion. And these are the contents of the letter. From Behum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their companions, representatives from the Danaites, the Aphrasachites, the Tarpalites, the people of Persia, and Eric, and Babylon, and Shushan, the Dehavites, and the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnipur took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the remainder beyond the river, and so forth. This is a copy of the letter that they sent him. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants, the men of the region, beyond the river, and so forth. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and the finishing its walls and repairing its foundations. Let it now be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Now, because we received support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. And you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and that they have incited sedition or treason uh, within the city in former times for which caused the city was destroyed. We inform you, the king, that if this city is rebuilt and its walls completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. 
And the king's answer is as follows. To Rahum, the commander, and Shemshai, the scribe, to the rest of their companions who dwell in Samaria, and to the remainder beyond the river, peace, and so forth. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me. And I gave the command, and a search has been made, and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings, and rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who are ruled over all the region beyond the river, and tax, tribute, and customs were paid to them. Now, give the command to make these men cease, that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the hurt of the kings? Now, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum, Shemshah, the scribes, and their companions, they went up with haste, of course, to Jerusalem against the Jews, and by force of arms made them cease. Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. How do we handle spiritual setbacks in our life? And I'm focusing on spiritual because uh, this rebuilding of the temple, rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem was a spiritual endeavor because it was the center of worship for the Israelites. You know, rebuilding the temple, that's where they went to worship God, rebuilding the altar because that is where they uh, went to offer sacrifices uh, to God. So this was a a spiritual endeavor and rebuilding the walls around the city to fortify them as most cities were in, uh, in antiquity. So this was a spiritual endeavor that they were undertaking, but it encountered opposition. So the question I'm asking this is opening is, how do we handle spiritual in our life? How do we handle times when we are spiritually, uh, in a sense, marching forward with the Lord and we encounter uh, satanic opposition, whether it's from friends or loved ones or from our jobs or from the business of life or whatever uh, the case may be from dealing with our sins. How do we handle those setbacks that we have? Sometimes in life it does feel like we take two steps forward and then five steps back, right? <laughs> you know, we, but we, we, we keep plodding forward, but, but sometimes we, we have good moments of joy where we feel like we're doing well, and then the next thing you know, we get knocked down. How do we handle those moments? Do we uh, descend into despondency, uh, deep discouragement, or do we look to uh, the Lord? Uh, so that's what we're going to talk about uh, this morning with the Lord's help. So what uh, spiritual setbacks have a purpose. They have a purpose. They're an opportunity for us to worship God alone. It always begins with God, always. It always does. And though the enemy is relentless in his pursuits, God's plans will not ultimately fail. That is our uh, big idea this morning. The setbacks that we have, the spiritual setbacks, are an opportunity. They are an occasion. They are a means 
for God to be glorified in our uh, life. And also, we must know that the plans of God, the plans that God uh, has for us will not ultimately fail. Amen. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So first, we're going to look at our first uh, principle, which is God alone is worthy of worship. So we're looking at this passage here. The adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, you know, they heard about the remnant coming back from Babylon to Jerusalem. Word has spread around, word on the street, as we would say, was that they were rebuilding their city. And so they came to Zerubbabel. And they came to uh, Jeshua because they were the leaders of God's people. And this is what they said here in verse 2. I want you to, to note something now. They were in the midst of pagans. These were pagan people. These were uh, Samaritans, and we're going to look at the significance of that. These were the adversaries of God's people. They were Israel's enemies in the region, and they did not want Israel to reestablish their presence in Jerusalem. So look at verse 2. They came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses, and said to them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. What does Rubel say? They said, you may not. This is in verse 3. You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God. For we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus had gave them permission to do. What do we see in that, in this principle? First of all, not every help is good help. Not every help is good help. In our, especially, we have... Uh, ecumenical organization and uh, ecumenical basically means all faiths okay you have interfaith ministries you have coalitions between uh, different religions in our nation in our world those alliances are harmful to Christianity they are unholy alliances and why is that because not everyone is of God and this matters more than we realize scripture speaks against unholy alliances so these pagans came the Israelites did need help in rebuilding this temple and the help came to them the pagans said we worship your God as you do. We sacrifice uh, to him. But that is not true. They're not sacrificing to the one true God. Scripture speaks against unholy alliances. Paul said in 2 Corinthians uh, 6, beginning at verse 14, to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness, what communion has light with darkness? 
What accord is there between the temple of God and Belial? Scripture calls us to not have business. And when it says unequally yoked, that means in all of our uh, relationships, all of our acquisitions, all of our uh, affiliations. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't work with unbelievers because all of us do work alongside unbelievers. What Scripture is talking about is going into partnership with unbelievers. Because... I don't know if you notice, but whenever you compromise with unbelievers, you'll become more of an unbeliever than they will become of a believer. It always happens with compromise. The one who usually compromises is the one who is the believer. And the more you compromise with evil, the more evil you become. That's why scripture speaks against unholy alliances with Christians. We are not, just like us as a church, we would never do any dealings with uh, an unbelieving um, organization that's doing some type of social good in the community. Because we're not to have uh, unholy alliances. We're to partner with other uh, Christian, and, and when I say Christian, I mean true biblical Christian uh, churches and organizations because what happens is you will begin to adapt their beliefs more than they adapt yours and that happens almost every time we have an organization here in Anderson called uh, Interfaith Ministries and they do a lot of good in the community one of the programs that they have is Meals on Wheels where they, they help deliver meals to uh, the elderly and disabled you know and that's, that's that is a good good that they do but the problem with interfaith ministries is that it is interfaith and they consider all faiths valid and all their faith claims valid I remember uh, Bob and I had lunch it was about four or five years ago uh, you know he was he was telling me that he was invited to a, a, a prayer breakfast that interfaith ministries uh, had and he was uh, there and they invited, you know, the, the imam from the Muslim uh, temple here in Anniston and the, the rabbi from the synagogue and the, the priest from the, um, you know, the um, Catholic church and all these different so-called faith leaders uh, to this dinner. And uh, Bob was invited to pray, but uh, they told him that he could not pray to God. Uh, and that he cannot mention, and this is true, he, got, he cannot mention uh, the name of, of, of Jesus because you don't want to offend the other uh, religions there. Of course, he turned down that invitation to do that because you're not compromised with evil. Okay, you don't create unholy alliances. And, and uh, ABC never supported uh, uh, interfaith ministries because they had considered doing that, and we did too, but we definitely decided not to when we when we found that out, but that, uh, that's what it's all about, that, that you can't pray to your God because it will be offensive to those who believe in false gods. But you have a lot of Christian churches that uh, participate in organizations like that. And those are unholy alliances that scripture uh, cautions us against. So when I say not every help is good help, uh, we must use discretion in doing that. And this is what uh, Zerubbabel did. 
These pagans said, hey, we worship the same God you do. And even now, you have people who believe that uh, Christians and Muslims worship the same God, that Allah is the same as God, but that is false. Allah is a false God. He is not the Trinitarian God. Muslims don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe. They believe that we worship three different gods. There's no other God beside the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. All faiths do not lead, as Oprah Winfrey famously said one time, everybody's not going up the mountain different ways getting to the same God. No, there's only one God. And we as believers must hold fast to that and not be afraid of standing on that and offending people. The gospel is offensive. The, the truth is offensive. And so Zerubbabel, he said, no. He said, you may not do anything with us to build a house to our God. Because he knew that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who made the covenant with Abraham and who confirmed it with Isaac and confirmed it with Jacob, the same God who brought them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, he knew that this God was the only God. And he told these pagans, no, you don't worship the same God as we do. You may call his name. You may make sacrifices to him, but you're sacrificing to the wrong God, not our God. We don't want anything to do with you helping us to rebuild a place of worship not every help is good help you know we live in a time of well we've we've gone beyond coexisting and and tolerance we've gone now uh, to uh, diversity equity and inclusion they call it DEI where everything has to be diverse and you have to have uh, diverse voices. You have to have equity where everybody is on the same plane. Everybody's God. Everybody's religious deity is just as important as everyone else's. And inclusion. You have to include all beliefs. But you know the irony of inclusion? That Christians are not included in inclusion. Our beliefs are put out. But I thought you were inclusive. But you can't share your Christian beliefs. You can't do it on a lot of college campuses, although these college campuses have an office of diversity, an office of equity and inclusion, but yet they won't let Christian, they won't let street preachers or evangelists come on their campuses to preach. Why? Because it offends people. But I thought you were inclusive. But we see this in our world now, that there's no tolerance for that. So what do Christians make the mistake of doing? They begin to compromise. And when you compromise, you might as well throw in the red flag because you're on the way down. Zerubbabel, he chose not to do that. He chose not to be what we call a syncretist. You may have heard the term syncretism before if you've been here uh, long enough. Uh, syncretism is the mixing the word think about the word sinking you're, you're mixing you're mixing uh, different religious quote faiths which is absurdly dangerous and the Samaritans that they are dealing with here 
who are resisting them, they were syncretists. Just as a historical context, turn to Second Kings right quick, and you all have heard of the Samaritans. You heard of the Samaritan woman at the well in John, the, the fourth chapter, and how the Jews avoided going through Samaria, but they went around Samaria. Uh, this has an, an origin. And it began in Second Kings. This is where... Um, The northern ten tribes were taken into captivity in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. So if you look at uh, 2 Kings 17 here, this is where this is chronicled. So here's 2 Kings 17, beginning at verse 29. It says, however, every nation continued to make gods of his own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made every nation in the cities where they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibaz and Tartak, and the Sephirvites burned their children in fire to Adramalek and Anamalek the gods of Sepharvain. So they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among them whom they carried away. To this day, they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law and the commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm. Him you shall fear. Him shall you worship. And to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and ordinances. The law the commandment. Which he wrote to you. You shall be careful to observe forever. You shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I made with you. You shall not forget. Nor shall you fear. Other gods. But the Lord your God you shall fear. And he will deliver you from the hand of your enemies. However, however, they did not obey, but they followed the former rituals. So these nations feared the Lord, yet served their called images. And also the children and the children's children have continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. So you see syncretism, right? They said they feared the Lord, but they also did what they worshiped the other gods. This is how the Sumerians became a nation, those northern ten tribes. The Assyrians scattered those tribes throughout the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrians came and repopulated uh, Samaria, which was the capital. And they began to intermix with those Jews. And that's how the Samaritan nation was born. They were syncretists. They, they tried to worship God in one hand and worship their false gods in the other. 
But always remember this, friends, adding Christ to anything equals nothing. Jesus plus anything else equals nothing. Just because you tack a Christian name onto it doesn't make it Christian. And that's what people do now, sadly. They add the name of Christ to things to, to try to Christianize it. One of the biggest movements just in the last few years was Christian yoga. You're going to take a Hindu practice, which is a, an act of worship, and put a Christian name on it and say, hey, we're going to, we're going to try to sanctify this, this Hindu practice of worship to their 300,000 or so deities and put a Christian name on it and sanctify it, make it, make it clean. There's it's it's nothing wrong with stretching, but the different poses in yoga are uh, acts of worship to their deities. But we take it and put a Christian name on it and think it's, it's okay because we put a Christian name on it. When all you're doing is practicing syncretism. You can say Christian astrology. <laughs> you know, it, 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 no matter what you put the name to, it's still wrong. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And we have to be very careful about trying to make things Christian just by slapping a name on it. Or trying to Christianize things that are not Christian. And that's how syncretism can be dangerous. And I put here, when you compromise in the name of tolerance, you will always drift toward the very thing that you're trying not to compromise. You always drift that way. You always make that leftward drift when you try to compromise. So these enemies here that were coming to oppose, they were claiming to be Jews, but they were not. And Jesus spoke of this in the letters to the, the seventh churches. He called uh, these type the synagogue of Satan. He said this to the faithful church in uh, Revelation 3 and 9. That they are of the synagogue of Satan. He says, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie indeed. So the principle of that, those who claim to be believers, but who are truly not believers, they are of the synagogue of Satan. It is satanic because we talked about satanic opposition. They, they come in and try, as Satan does, disguise himself as an angel of light. And he deceives people. He deceives even the elect. We must understand that we are sent out as sheep among wolves. And that we must be wise. And know that only God alone is worthy of worship. And not to give in to the gods of this culture. And not try to sanctify the gods of this culture to make it more palpable for us. More acceptable. But we are to reject them with everything that is within us. 
We cannot allow so-called Christians to get us off track from the mission that God has called us on. So when we think about these spiritual setbacks, the opportunities to worship God and God alone. And that is what Zerubbabel and Jeshua did. They, this opposition came. They tried to set them back. But they were determined to do what? Worship God and God alone. We're building this temple to our God, the God, the Lord God of Israel. Amen. Our second principle is that the enemy is relentless in his pursuit to discourage, cause fear, and frustrate God's people in their work. He is relentless. Now, if you look at the passage here, this is, this is not the first letter that was written to stop uh, the rebuilding of this temple. They were actually, uh, this is the second letter that was written. In verse 12, let it be known and are building the rebellious and evil city. They are finishing his wall. That was the second letter that uh, was written. And it was, a, it was opposing the rebuilding of the whole city, not just the temple. They didn't want anything to be rebuilt at all. So the intent of this letter was to harm the Jews by telling the king half-truths that they don't pay their taxes, they don't give tribute. They were telling half-truths. They did give taxes and they did give tribute, but they gave it to their kings because they were living under a different kingship. They were not living under the kings of the pagans. They were living under the kings that God had set over them. So they were giving tribute and they were giving taxes to King Solomon to help rebuild the temple. They weren't concerned with the kings around them because those kings around them were pagans. So the king's enforcers destroyed whatever work the Jews began uh, rebuilding. We see that in verse 23 of this chapter. When the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum, Shemshai, and the scribe, and their companions, they went up with haste. Hey, they got their answer, and they went to Jerusalem with the quickness. They were eager. They went to Jerusalem against the Jews and by force of arms made them cease. They basically, in essence, put guns to their head and said, you're going to stop this work. The enemy is very relentless in his pursuit in doing that. There was widespread opposition. And the enemies, they attempted to overwhelm them, especially with the numbers of uh, opposers that they had because you had all these people writing uh, to the king. You see all those names listed in verse 9 and then verse 10, the rest of the nations. So they had all these people coming against them. It was widespread opposition coming up against these people. Do you know that we have a spiritual enemy people? His name is Satan. He is our adversary. Just as there was satanic opposition to this work, it's satanic opposition to what uh, we're doing for God and how we're trying to live for God. We have a spiritual enemy 
who seeks to discourage us and to frustrate the believer by any means necessary. Satan is going to throw everything at us and the kitchen sink. The plumbing, the pipes, everything. He's going to throw everything at us to, to, to do what? To discourage us. And he's relentless in doing that. He does it every single day. First Peter 5 says that he walks the earth. He tells the suffering Christians in Asia Minor, your adversary. He says in 1 Peter 5 and 8, be sober. Sober means alert. And be vigilant. Vigilant means always on watch, always on guard, like a, like a sentry on duty. We're to be alert. We're, we're to always be aware. It doesn't mean being nervously alert or nervously aware or, or filled with anxiety. That's not what it means. We're just supposed to be alert. We're supposed to be awake. We're supposed to be aware that we have a spiritual enemy, but we're not to fear that enemy. But we are to be alert. We are to be vigilant. And he gives the reason. We have to be watchful. He says, because your adversary, Christian, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. I remember growing up watching uh, Mutual, o Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. I remember watching that growing up. He's come on Saturday mornings. And they would show, you know, the, the, the good stuff about animals, but I love when they showed the predators. You know, the lions and the tigers and the, and the hyenas out in the wild. You know, and how they, 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 they crouched. And they would uh, attack, you know, the, the, the wildebeest and the gazelles and all these other um, helpless, <laughs> unsuspecting uh, animals. They were sneaky. They were deceptive. You think about the lion. Isn't the lion the king of the jungle, as they say? You ever seen a lion before, like, up close? Like, a, that, that, their heads are, like, this big. And, uh, man, if I see it, I just had to play dead as best I can. <laughs> and th their paws are, like, as big as my hands. They're, like, huge. They're enormous. And, but that's what Satan is like. He's like a roaring lion. I mean, we were somewhere at some zoo. It was in San Diego, uh, five years ago, we went vacation out there, and we heard that lion roar. I'd never heard a lion roar before. And it's, it's very distinct. I'll say that. That lion went up on this little perch and just started roaring. And I said, man, it just sounds very terrifying. I'm serious. <laughs> yes. And it was inside of a big cage, but just hearing that roar lets you know that, you know, the lion is in town. And everybody else better get out the way. Uh, but Satan is like a roaring lion. He's, he's described as that. He, he's prowling. He's walking the earth to and fro, back and forth. And what is he doing? He's seeking whom he may devour. Satan is relentless in doing that. But Peter gives us an antidote. He says, resist him. How do we resist him? steadfast in the faith and the faith is the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ not just some ethereal faith but our faith has an object it has a person 
We stand fast in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. When we face opposition, that's what we do. We resist that opposition. We resist Satan. We resist him on our knees. We resist him in the word. We resist him by proclaiming God's truth to him. Just as Christ showed us in Matthew, the fourth chapter, and Luke, the fourth chapter. When that opposition comes against these opposers. It is also the accuser of the brethren. Uh, that is in uh, Revelation 12 and 10. Satan relentlessly accuses believers before God. Accuses us of sin. Accuses us of unrighteousness. He stands to do that. But the great thing about his accusations is they can't touch us because uh, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. I mean, Jesus Christ, the righteous. As Satan stands to accuse us, Christ pleads our righteousness before the Father. So Satan's accusations against the saints do not stand a chance against Christ as our advocate. These people here in, in Ezra, they're being taunted by all these people, all these nations that came up against them to oppose the rebuilding. All these scribes and their companions, the people of Persia, the people of Babylon, all these different ites, all of them came up against God's people. And they were discouraged, as anyone would be. And we have the opposition come up against us. Even in our society and in our culture, as the, the culture more and more gets more and more hostile toward Christianity, what do we do? We look to God. We resist him steadfast. We res resist, rather, Satan steadfast in our faith. Because Satan wants us to throw in the towel before we even get started. He wants us to quit. What did Jesus tell Peter? Um, and I think it's, it's recorded in Matthew and Luke. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And this is right, this is before Peter uh, denied him. He, he said, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But Jesus says, when you are converted or when you turn to me okay so Jesus was telling Peter that Satan was going to try to sift him but he says when you are converted strengthen the brethren Peter did deny Jesus three times but Christ restored him and Christ became one of the great leaders of the Lord's church but Satan desired him to sift him. There's no same desire to sift all of us as believers. When they sifted wheat, they, they pounded on it on the threshing floor. That's what it means to sift, to, to ground and, and pound. And that's how they did wheat back then. They put it in the threshing floor and sifted it like that. And that's what Satan desires to do with us. He desires to sift us, to, to discourage us, to cause us to fall into a state of profound discouragement 
That's what he seeks to do. And he is relentless in doing that. But we'll see in the end that he will not prevail. Whenever we have setbacks, the devil and his demons will seem to have the upper hand. Sometimes it seems like that. I've had seasons of my life where, where it seemed as if Satan had the upper hand. Where I could not see my way out. All of us have probably had seasons in life like that. Where you had profound discouragement. You, had, uh, you were so despondent, so down in spirit. It may seem like that. But the Lord always is there for us. The enemies of the Jews use a letter to write to the kings to issue an edict to stop them from uh, rebuilding. The enemies of Christianity are relentless and seem to be winning the battles. Think about it, in our nation in particular. We, we've lost the marriage uh, war back in 2015. We've lost the, uh, the sex war. I mean, sex, I mean, you know, they say gender, but it's actually sex. We've you know, uh, battle in our country. We, 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 we lost uh, the worth of children in the womb back in 1973. And our religious liberties and freedoms are under attack now. Our... Um, desire to exercise our Christian conscience is under assault right now in our nation. We seem to be losing the battle. They use government mandates, judicial rulings, uh, social uh, media to oppose the work of the Lord's church and to advance their evil causes. That is what we see now. What are we called to do? We're called to resist the enemy. We're called to resist him. James 4 and 7 tells us to do that. Why? Because our enemy is a liar. Satan is a liar. Jesus said in John 8 and 44 that you are of your father the devil. And the devil, he is a liar from the beginning. He is the father of lies. Satan lies and deceives and wants us to think that things are worse than they actually are. That's what he seeks to do. He is a liar, friends. As my old folks used to say, the devil is a lie. <laughs> because he is. And the truth ain't in him. That's what my grandma used to say. The devil is a lie and the truth ain't in him. You know, they didn't have much of their education, so that's, that's how they talk. But they were right. The devil is a lie. And the truth is not in them. We must not believe the lies of Satan. We must know that we have victory over him through Christ. We have spiritual setbacks. They will bring about the relentless pursuit of Satan to discourage us. But we have victory over him through Christ. He will bruise your heel, but you will bruise his head. That is Christ crushing the head of Satan. And that's what happened. That's what he did. He crushed the head of Satan. Satan has been defeated. He's a vanquished foe. He has been defeated. 
And that is why we look to him for that. Amen. Our last principle. That God's plan never fails, even in the midst of intense opposition. Look at verses 21 and 24. So uh, we see here. Verse 21. It says, now give command to make these men cease that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Then what happened in verse 24? The work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, by providence, the Lord left the door open for the Jews to continue to rebuild. The door wasn't fully shut. It says it will be discontinued until. It didn't say that it will be discontinued forever or to perpetuity. The work of the uh, rebuilding was discontinued for, I think, uh, some historians say between 10 and 12 years. It was stopped, but it wasn't stopped forever. The Jews did experience a temporary setback, but God's plans would not be stopped. Looking back at the very first uh, chapter and second verse in the book of Ezra, you see where it said, according to the word of the prophet Jeremiah. According to the word of Jeremiah. By the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So I've one and one. By the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Jeremiah 29 verses 10 through 14 says this. For thus says the Lord after 70 years I completed at Babylon. I will visit you and perform my good word toward you. And cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I have toward you. Says the Lord thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me. And I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me. When you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place for which I caused you to be carried away captive. What does all that mean? The rebuilding was going to be done. It may have been delayed. It may have been a setback. But God's plans never fail. Never. It will not be stopped. There's a temporary setback. They experience intense opposition from all corners. But guess what? I'm going to tell you all something. We, we, we as Christians, you know, must know this. We sometimes fear the opposition because the number seems so great. Because their fervor seems so hot. Their anger towards Christ and his church seems so intense. But none of that matters because God's plans will not 
fail. God does not fail. He never will. What did Christ say about the church? He says, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail. Will they come up against the church? Yes. The opposition will come. They're going to throw everything at Christ's ones. That's what uh, uh, the word Christian means, Christ's ones. They're going to throw everything at us. They're going to throw everything at the church. They're going to try all that they can to destroy the church. The church is the last institution that is standing right now that hasn't been taken over by the culture. And critical race theory and intersectionality. The church is the last institution that's standing. They've taken over the colleges. They've taken over the business world, the corporate world. They've taken over the media. They've taken over the public schools. What institution is left? The true church, not the false church. The true church is the last institution left, and they're going to try with their best to oppose the church. Whether it's through government mandates, whether it's through legislation, whether it's through Supreme Court edicts, whether it's through executive orders, they're going to try their best. But what did Jesus say? The gates of hell. They're going to come crashing. They're going to crash into that gate and fall. Why? Christ's church will not fail. When God says they will not prevail, guess what? They won't prevail. Like uh, in the book of Isaiah says, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the gates, I mean, I'm sorry, the Lord puts up a standard against it. The enemy will come in like a flood, but the Lord will put up a, a standard of defense against it. We must know that God is for us. Paul said in Romans 8 and 31, if God be for us, who can be against us? That is a rhetorical question. The answer is no one, no thing, no institution, no ideology, no philosophy of this world can be against us. Why? Because God is for us. God is for his people. God is for Israel coming back to rebuild. God's plans for his people would never ultimately fail. Never ultimately fail. When those Romans crucified Christ, they thought that they won. They thought that they won. When they put him in that tomb, they thought they won. But three days later, guess what? They lost. They did not win. They did not win. In the end, God always prevails, and that is encouragement for us. So during spiritual setbacks, we must remember 
that God's plans will never fail. I hope that encourages you all. Um, I'm going to read this from Robert Hawker, the Puritan. He said this about this verse. He says, the accomplishment of their wicked purpose may serve to show us how the Lord is pleased sometimes for the exercise of faith in his people to let the enemy triumph. And when the short-lived victories of our daily foes have this blessed effect upon our hearts to make us more sensible of our nothingness and to make Jesus and his fullness more precious, even our foes become instruments in the Lord's hand to his glory and our greater good. When the Jews had nailed Jesus to the cross, how distressed must have been the minds of all his followers. But behold, that cross soon became his people's glory. And now it is the everlasting joy of all his followers and will be the song of redemption in heaven with all the ransom of Jesus forevermore. That was the Puritan Robert Hawker in speaking on this verse. The enemy's triumphs are short-lived. Just like this opposition was short-lived. It was only 10 to 12 years. It was a short-lived victory for the enemies. But it is not an ultimate victory. Amen. So in conclusion, setbacks will happen. It will happen. The Bible says that all who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. The question is, are we ready for it? Are we ready for setbacks? Are we ready for the discouraging times in life? Are we surprised by them? Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4 and 12 to, to not be surprised by the fiery trials that come our way. Don't be surprised by them because they're going to happen. So as far as applications are concerned, always remember this, friends. Jesus is more than enough. He's not only enough, he's more than enough. He is more than enough. It's like the parable of the hidden treasure in Matthew uh, 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And when Jesus was speaking that parable, he was speaking of himself. He is that great treasure, and we're called to treasure him alone. Secondly, always remember to resist the enemy. Always. Always resist the enemy. And lastly, God never fails. Trust in him. Like we sung earlier today, turn your eyes upon Jesus and know in your heart that it is well with your soul. When trials come, know that it is well with your soul. May let us pray. Father, thank you that in spite of our setbacks, in spite of moments of discouragement and disappointment, that those are opportunities to worship you alone, those opportunities to look to you and to trust in you even more. 
And Lord, though the enemy is relentless in his pursuits, your plans will not ultimately fail, just as the enemy's plans in our passage. They will fail, but Lord, your plan to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and rebuild the altar and rebuild the wall, they will not fail. As we go through this week, we will face spiritual opposition. We will face demonic opposition. Will help us to press in, to press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus our Lord. Give us gospel perseverance this week as we go to work and go to school and, and work in the home and go out in public. Persevere us, Lord. Thank you for your encouragement through your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen.